welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. In an interview with Axios on HBO, President Trump asserted that he can end birthright citizenship in the U.S. with an executive order. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. In fact, many countries, including Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina, have U.S.-style birthright citizenship, and President Trump's efforts are likely to meet stiff resistance in the courts. Joining me is Susanna Sherry, a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. Most legal scholars, not all, but most, say the law on its face and interpretations show that children born to illegal immigrants are U.S. citizens. Explain the basis of that legal thinking. Well, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution starts by saying all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So the 14th Amendment says it right there. If you're born in the United States, you are a citizen. Now explain the legal perspective of those who point to those words subject to the jurisdiction thereof and say the 14th Amendment doesn't cover the children of illegal immigrants. Well, what the, the purpose of the subject to the jurisdiction thereof language uh, was to codify the common law exceptions to birthright citizenship. So at the time uh, that the 14th Amendment was adopted, and in fact at the time of the American Revolution, m- common law in England and then eventually common law in the United States uh, had birthright citizenship. But there were two exceptions. Uh, you were not uh, a citizen if you were born in a country, but you were the child of diplomats from a foreign country, and you were not, uh, didn't have birthright citizenship if you were born in a country, uh, but you were the child of uh, an uh, alien enemies in hostile occupation, as the common law put it. In other words, uh, foreign diplomats and uh, invading armies uh, were not subject to the jurisdiction of the host country, and so their children uh, didn't have birthright citizenship. And the purpose of the subject-to-jurisdiction language was just to make it clear that although most people would have birthright citizenship, those two exceptions would continue to be exceptions. Explain the Supreme Court's position. It's never addressed this particular issue directly. And uh, the case in which it did address this issue was in 1898. Well, it did address it pretty directly. It was in 1898. Um, it was um, uh, in a case called Wong Kim Ark. And Wong, Wong Kim Ark had been born in the United States of parents who were Chinese citizens. Now, it so happened that uh, they were legally in the United States. But, you know, the Supreme Court never even mentioned that. The majority opinion never cared whether they were legal or illegal, the majority opinion simply said they were residing in the United States and he was born in the United States. And they said unequivocally, the, uh, nothing is better settled than the doctrine that children, even of aliens born in a country while the parents are residents there, 
are subjects by birth. And the court went out of its way to say the only two exceptions were for diplomats and invading armies uh, and that it uh, it didn't matter why the parents were here or how long they were here, even if they were here for a few days, temporarily sojourning here, the court said, uh, the children would still be citizens. Uh, so I think that case is in fact directly on point. In some ways, uh, uh, Kim, uh, Wong Kim Ark uh, had a, an even bigger problem than the, undo- the children of undocumented immigrants today. Uh, under the, the law of the United States and the law of China at the time, his parents could never have become citizens. Uh, Chinese uh, people who were, were born in China could not become American citizens. So it, it, the only way he could become a citizen was because he was born here. So President Trump says he can end birthright citizenship with an executive order. Does that conflict with the administration's claims that President Obama could not start DACA with a unilateral action? It does conflict with that, um, and it's, I think, uh, an even weaker claim. That is, uh, starting DACA might have taken congressional approval, but it wasn't trying to change constitutional rules. Uh, What President Trump says he wants to do would be to try to change the constitutional rule, which he couldn't do even if he had Congress with him. That is, even Congress couldn't pass a law stripping uh, these uh, American-born children of their birthright citizenship. Assuming that this is not just a plan of Trump's to rev up his base before the midterms and that he actually does issue an executive order to end birthright citizenship. What kind of challenges would that face in the courts? Uh, Well, I think it would be challenged immediately um, by uh, children who were born here and who would therefore be in danger of having their uh, citizen born here of undocumented immigrants and who would therefore be in danger of having their citizenship taken away. And I believe that the uh, attorney general of the state of Washington has already indicated uh, that he would bring suit on behalf of uh, the American citizens within his state who would be affected by this. Uh, The state of Washington was heavily involved in and brought several of the cases challenging uh, Trump's travel ban order. Susanna, if it did reach the Supreme Court by some stretch of the imagination, are there justices on the court who might support Trump's interpretation? I certainly hope not, because there's really no plausible legal argument in favor of it. This is a constitutional doctrine. It is right there in the Constitution. The text is clear. The history is clear. The precedent is clear. So it really doesn't matter what your theory of constitutional interpretation is. It all points to the same thing, which is that it would take a constitutional amendment to change birthright citizenship. And just remind us about how much it takes to have a constitutional amendment and why we're not likely to see one. Well, the Congress, both houses of Congress have to propose it, and then it has to be ratified by three quarters of the states. And it's only, the Constitution's only been amended 27 times, and 10 of those were all at once. So, uh, highly unlikely. But um, there there has been some minority viewpoints through the years about this amendment. What, what brings it up every once in a while? 
Well, I think it's um, birthright citizenship is not always very popular. Um, there are a lot of things in the Constitution that aren't popular. And from time to time, both state governments and the federal government or people in those governments um, try to change them or try to get around them. And usually it ends up in the courts and the courts say no. All right. Thanks so much, Susanna. Thanks for joining us at Susanna Sherry, a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. Google wants to give $8.5 million to charity to settle a consumer privacy class action, but that settlement is being questioned at the Supreme Court. Joining us is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, who was in at the arguments this morning. So, Greg, the idea of the settlement is that there are 129 million Google users, so instead of compensating them directly with about four cents each, let's give the settlement money to a few charities. What's the objection to the settlement that brought the case to the Supreme Court? The objection is uh, there's a man named Ted Frank who also argued the case, and he uh, uh, intervened in the case to say, look, it's not fair that this money that is supposed to go to people like me uh, instead goes to these hand-picked organizations, hand-picked by the plaintiff's lawyers and by the company being sued, uh, Google. Uh, the, he says that the district court should have required uh, them, if they're going to settle the case, to come up with some feasible way for sending at least some of the money to the individuals who he says were harmed. You know, settlements like this where class members get nothing are really rare. There was research by a Harvard law professor that indicated only 18 cases ever where federal courts approve these kind of settlements. Why did the Supreme Court even agree to hear this case? Yeah, that, that is a good question. Yeah, that's, that's uh, research by Harvard Law Professor William Rubenstein. Um, the, the court, you know, is often skeptical about both plaintiff's lawyers and class action lawsuits. And in this case, uh, there is some reason for the court to be skeptical about the intentions of both Google and the lawyers behind the case. When I say there's reason, there's at least reason for the court's conservative members. Uh, they are the ones who are asking the toughest questions about the, the settlement today. If the settlement gets thrown out, it will probably be a decision with uh, that is at least primarily coming from the conservative wing of the court. Tell us more about what you gleaned from the justices' questions at oral arguments. Well, June, it, it's actually quite complicated because there's also an, uh, another question that cuts across ideological lines on the court having to do with whether this type of suit uh, should have gotten into court in the first place. Uh, There's an earlier Supreme Court case a couple years ago uh, uh, involving uh, the, the notion of standing, that is, the idea that you have to be injured before you can bring a, a, a case in, in federal court. And there are some questions in court today about whether the the users who uh, filed this lawsuit over this this um, uh, the thing called referral headers. The claim is basically that um, when you do a search on the internet uh, on Google and then you click on some website, that Google is then sending that information about what your search terms were to the the company whose website you you call up. Uh, and there were some real questions about whether uh, 
anybody had shown they were harmed by that practice. And, and if there are five justices who are, are concerned enough, it could be that the court doesn't actually reach the, the issues in the case about the settlement itself. Because the decision in this case could be just what you said, no, no decision basically about the fundamentals, or it could be some you know, earth-shaking decision about class actions. It, it, it could, and you know, and what you have to do to, to settle the case. Um, it, one of the interesting dynamics here was uh, the two newest justices, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, um, seem to be concerned about very different things. So Kavanaugh uh, was didn't seem to be bothered by the standing point. He was more concerned about the settlement and where the money was going to. Justice Gorsuch didn't seem to be concerned about the settlement, or at least he didn't ask any questions about it. But he was one of the ones who was very concerned about whether this case should have been brought in the first place. Uh, so you may have a split among the conservative justices about what exactly to do in this case. What about the Chief Justice, John Roberts, because he was the one that uh, some years ago hinted that these kind of settlements might be interesting for the court to look at in the right situation. Yeah, he he was uh, someone who did express a lot of concern about where the money was going to. He, uh, you know, was skeptical. So one of the groups getting the money uh, is AARP, the Senior Citizens Advocacy Group, and he was uh, kind of scratching his head as to as to why uh, that made any sense. Uh, allocating the money to that group uh, did anything to actually uh, deal with the underlying complaint in this case. Um, he also expressed a concern. That, that some of the money was going to a, a group that Google had donated to before. Um, so he, he certainly seemed to be one of the, the justices who had wanted to take this case in the first place uh, and would like to restrict these sorts of settlements. Greg, just give us a little bit of background about the Supreme Court's attitude in recent years, you might say the Roberts Court's attitude toward class actions. Uh, highly skeptical. They have uh, really scaled them back in a variety of contexts. The, the one that probably got the most attention was a case involving uh, Walmart and uh, a discrimination suit against Walmart, where they essentially said um, this lawsuit, this nationwide lawsuit, is too sprawling, involved employees from too many different in too many different situations. Um, this is a little bit different because in this case, the company actually likes the ability to settle these, these suits. So uh, to the extent uh, you think th- that this court uh, has a tendency to favor the companies in these big class action suits, here's a case where uh, Google is actually urging the court to uphold this settlement. It has managed to get rid of this suit at a relatively small uh price tag for, for Google, and, uh, you know, the money actually went to some organizations that Google uh, doesn't seem to mind uh, uh, giving money to. All right. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Greg Starr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, and one of the objections of the plaintiffs in this case was to the $2 million going to the attorneys in this case, uh, the class action attorneys. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.